Two Towns Over is a podcast where we explore the fascinating world of urban legends, conspiracy theories, and campfire tales to find out if there are any truths behind the legends. With dark humor and natural curiosity, we tackle the darkened streets of the town we all know. Welcome to the town with no name. This is Two Towns Over. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Towns Over Campfire Stories. I'm Ruben. And I'm Don. And the idea behind Campfire Stories is sometimes there are just urban legends that don't really have a story behind them, but they're still fun to tell. It's not going to take an hour to tell the story, even. We might just take five or ten minutes to tell you guys a cool urban legend or a truth behind the myth. Like, there's no way I can make a full episode out of an alligator in a sewer. There was an alligator in a sewer. Story over. Someone flushed a snake down the toilet it got big sorry guys um so anyway what do you got for me this week don what kind of spooky scary skeletons we got cooking well, up i actually found out um because i watched the movie hellraiser for halloween today after halloween yes pinhead is the only yeah. word i know about that one <laughs> well you know about the box nope the idea behind hellraiser was that there was a box it's like a puzzle box mm-hmm. and inside this box is the keys to pleasure and pain heaven and hell so it's like a pandora's box situation basically you have to solve it well that puzzle box was based it's the the puzzle box is called the lament configuration but it was based off of an urban legend called the devil's toy box ah so we're talking about the devil's toy box we are talking about the devil's toy awesome tell me more all right so the devil's toy box is an urban legend that savvier horror fans like i said will recognize as the inspiration for the infamous lament configuration from clive barker's uh, hellraiser series though in reality the titular box is not a toy but rather a small room where the floor the ceiling and the walls are each composed of one giant mirror now according to legend if you stood inside this mirror room uh, alone for too long supposedly the devil would show up and steal your soul now, in most versions of this story, he did so by flaying you alive. That so. sounds pretty, pretty hardcore. Mm-hmm. Now, I mentioned all this because about two weeks ago, getting into the story now, mm-hmm. uh, I got an email from an old friend, someone who was well-versed in my sordid past, asking if I could help out their younger sister, an 18-year-old girl who we'll, who we'll call Erin, located in northern Louisiana. Now, the specific parish where Aaron lived shall go unnamed for reasons that will soon become obvious. Okay. And where's the story coming to us from? Uh, this is this, this creepypasta, or this is actually coming from creepypasta, uh, but I, I believe that this is actually a creepypasta version based off the original, the original, the original legend. urban legend. Okay. So, now like pretty much everywhere else, the place where Aaron grew up had its own annual haunted house attraction that went up every October. The attraction was called Farmer Graves Haunted Orchard, and in years past, it had been every bit as thrilling as the name suggested, which is to say not very. So for the previous Halloween, the owners decided to spice things up by building several new interactive installations, which included a windowless shack called the Devil's Toy Box. Now, this shack housed a small room composed of large wall-sized mirrors. Now, that's how Erin heard it described anyhow. Uh, She had never been inside the toy box herself. Farmer Graves closed less than a week after opening a result of the numerous people who had been had to be hospitalized after going inside the Devil Toy Box attraction. Erin didn't get a chance to try out the box for herself because before the closure, 
but she had heard countless stories about it from her classmates at school. So apparently, no one could last longer than five minutes inside the room. There was even a large timer set up beside the building to show the current occupant's length of stay under a second clock displaying the longest recorded time up to that point, which maxed out at just uh, over four minutes before the attraction finally closed. Now, the man who managed to last that, that long, his name was Roger Heltz, age 52, father of three, had been reduced to a wide-eyed mute. To this day, he still hasn't said a word. One woman suffered a heart attack after just 90 seconds inside the box, and a 17-year-old boy had to be dragged out kicking and screaming. The boy was from a nearby parish and hadn't gone to Aaron's school, though her friend Celeste claimed her parents were friends with the boy's mom. They went to his funeral uh, when he killed himself two weeks later. Now, whatever the truth of the matter, town officials were quick to act in getting Farmer Graves shut down. But of course, this didn't stop people from talking about the now infamous attraction, which they began to do almost immediately. For the next month or so, it seemed like the toy box was the only thing on anyone's mind. It had become the stuff of legend, and of course, it didn't take long for the local kids to start venturing out to the orchard at night to see the box for themselves. Now, Farmer Gray's Haunted Orchard was owned by a middle-aged couple named Will and Darlene Sawyer. And when the town council ordered the Sawyers to shut the place down, they were so pissed about the ruling that they left most of the attractions still standing, including the Devil's Toy Box. The actual orchard was on a plot of land located at the rear of the Sawyer's property and was only accessible by a narrow two-lane dirt road. One night, several seniors at Aaron's school snuck out to the Sawyer's property on a dare and claimed that they found the toy box entrance padlocked. Ah, those wily kids. Yeah. But then Will Sawyer, the owner, showed up out of nowhere and asked them if they wanted to go inside. Will's sudden arrival had startled the young men, but once they realized that he wasn't mad at them for trespassing and in fact seemed genuinely happy to see them, the guys decided to take him up on his offer to have a go inside the box. You see, first of all, if you're trespassing and the person seems happy to see you and wants you to go into a place that they've padlocked, <laughs> that seems uh, suspicious. That's very sus. <laughs> as the kids are saying as nowadays. As the kids are saying nowadays. <laughs> now, of course, they chickened out as soon as Will unlocked the door and it seemed to swing open on its own like a hungry mouth at the sight of food. Also sus. <laughs> That's how the rumors about midnight screenings of the Devil's Toy Box began to circulate. Most of the people who ventured out there afterwards claimed they encountered Will Sawyer after waiting beside the toy box for an unspecified length of time. A few even said that they went inside the box, but these claims were always dismissed as bullshit. Yeah, fuck you, Terry. You didn't go in the goddamn box. <laughs> fucking liar. No one came out of that box that was coherent enough to talk about it. Now, last week, my cousin Aaron's boyfriend, Troy, went out there with some of his idiot friends, and Aaron hadn't seen him since. His parents had reported him missing, and Aaron even told the cops about the rumors surrounding the toy box, but they barely seemed to be listening. Now, Aaron was going crazy, worrying about Troy, and of course, she was hoping I would be intrigued enough by her story to come out with her to investigate Farmer Graves, because she was too scared to do so by herself. Aaron's location was only a three-hour drive from New Orleans, so I asked my friend Jason and his girlfriend Gretchen to take a ride with me. This way, I wouldn't feel so weird about driving all the way to see an 18-year-old girl I didn't know. We rolled into town about 5 p.m. that Saturday and met up with Aaron at the McDonald's, as she called it. I laughed when I first heard her say that and immediately felt like an asshole for thinking it was funny that Aaron's, only ha Aaron's town only had one McDonald's. Our meet and greet started out a little awkward on account of the uh, stares we were getting from the rest of the restaurant. Then again, four strangers driving into town to meet a teenage girl at the McDonald's will do that. 
Thankfully, Gretchen was there to defuse the situation with one simple question. Did you make that? She was pointing at Aaron's backpack, which was actually a stuffed doll that I recognize as Lumpy Space Princess from the cartoon Adventure Time. Only Oh my glob. <laughs> only most of the stuffing had been removed and a purple pouch had been sewn into it that sealed closed via a matching purple zipper. The straps were made out of old retro-looking seatbelts. Aaron nodded and Gretchen's jaw dropped. Oh my God, will you make me one? Will you make me two? Gretchen asked. Sure, as long as you provide the supplies, Aaron said laughing. Gretchen was grinning ear to ear as she turned to face me. You have to help this girl so she can make me a tiny adorable backpacks. It was a little after 10 p.m. when we neared the end of the narrow dirt road that led to Farmer Gray's Haunted Orchard. Which, why do they always do this at night? Um, Because they're all dumbasses. I mean, I would think if I was going to a haunted location or something that's supposed to be haunted, I would do it at 8 a.m. It may, I think it also makes it creepier if the story is during the daytime and the horrible shit still happens. Yeah. Because, like, the symbolism is that bad shit happens at night. Well, how about <laughs> bad shit happens regardless of the time of day because that's how the devil operates. Have you ever read Job? <laughs> that shit happened for years to that man. He got <laughs> fucked over constantly, day and night, for a very long time. Like... The devil did that, guys. <laughs> I just want you to know. Like, We parked beside a tall wooden archway that designated the orchard's front entrance. I handed out flashlights from the small stash of them in my trunk, and then we started inside. The place looked about how I expected it to. A row of brightly colored plywood shacks lined the vacant field beside several rows of satsuma trees that had been covered in fake cobwebs and quote-unquote scary decorations. Spoopy. Each shack had a sign displaying the name of a different attraction. There was Horn Toss, which, judging from the illustration on its side, was a ring toss game where you tried to throw halos onto a demon's horns. Werewolf Bowling, which was anybody's guess. And my I wonder if it was bowling. Yeah, probably. Uh, with werewolves. <laughs> my personal favorite, The Exorcist, which was a mounted squirt gun game that had several wood cutouts of Linda Blair's face as its targets. Cartoon water tanks were painted below each of the mounted squirt guns that were labeled Holy Water. The Devil's Toy Box was the last shack in the row. It was painted a bright orange and red, and the door, which made up one entire wall of the small structure, was padlocked shut. Someone had stacked a dozen or so rusted folding chairs against the side of the toy box. Aaron grabbed one of the chairs and began to unfold it as she said, Now we wait. How long? Gretchen asked. It varies, but hopefully not forever. Aaron motioned at the thick patch of wilderness to our left, and I turned to see a window glowing out there in the distant darkness. See it? That's the Sawyer house. They must know we're here. And that's a good thing? Gretchen's tone was tense, and she had a look on her face that said she'd just realized how much she didn't want to be doing any of this. Before Aaron and I could answer, she turned to Jason and asked, Baby, will you walk me back to the car? Jason gave her an irritated look. What? Why? Because all of this just got too real, she said. You knew what we were coming out here to do. I explained it to you in vivid detail. Jason, please. No, nah, it's bullshit, Gretch. What do you, you do this every time. I know, she said. This is the fucking Avengers sneak preview all over again. I missed everything cool. I'm sorry. She batted her eyes as she gave Jason an adorable frown Gretchen had honed over many years of getting her way. Jason let out an exasperated sigh, and I handed him the keys to the car. I'll be right back, he muttered. I pulled out a chair and took a seat next to Aaron as we watched the beams from Jason and Gretchen's flashlight shrink off into the darkness. A thought came to me just then, as if this didn't already resemble an episode of Scooby-Doo. Now we're splitting up. That's just asking for it. As soon as the words crossed my mind, we heard the crunch of approaching footsteps. Aaron and I stood in unison and exchanged a panicked glance before turning the orchard. 
a middle-aged man with long, scraggly hair emerged from the darkness and into the range of our flashlights. Redneck Santa. <laughs> he was holding an electric lantern and wearing an open bathrobe over a dirty white undershirt and sweatpants. Will Sawyer was basically Vincent Price if he had starred in The Big Lebowski. <clears throat> he smiled and gave us a thumbs up as he said, you here for the box. Gross. Sort of. That's exactly what he sounds like <laughs> in my head now. <laughs> you here for the box. Sort of, Aaron replied, and Will gave her a look like he had no idea what that could possibly mean. Have you seen this guy? I held up the photo of Troy that Aaron had texted to my phone as Will started to approach us. He squinted at the picture. Maybe, he said. When was that? Uh, a few weeks ago. He was the one that went in the box. Most won't go inside anymore. Lasted almost three minutes and he ran off screaming. Aaron let out a sharp gas. Ran off? Ran off where? Will pointed a thumb back to the dark patch of wilderness behind him and replied, Into the fucking woods. Where do you think? I opened that door and he came shooting out, dick flapping naked from the waist down. Had his boxers on his head and his pants wrapped around his neck like a scarf. I was, it was honestly pretty funny. <laughs> Aaron covered her mouth with her hand as her eyes began to well with tears. Will grinned and said, You want to see inside? That's a... Hey, Don. Huh? Kudos for this voice acting. It's really, it's really put me in the world. Thank you. We aren't here for the box, I said, stepping in front of Aaron and glaring at Will. But it's so breathtaking, the man said as he gestured toward the toy box's wide door, which slowly swung open. The interior was shrouded in darkness, but I could still see something vaguely human-shaped moving around inside the box. Yeah, I thought, fuck that. Run! I grabbed Aaron by the arm and pulled her along with me as I sprinted away from the toy box. I could hear something chasing after us as we ran back toward the orchard's entrance, and I said... And I say something because it certainly didn't sound like a person. What I heard weren't footsteps, but rather one long scraping sound, accompanied by a wet breathing that reminded me of a panting dog. Thankfully, Jason heard me screaming just as he and Gretchen reached my car. They turned to spot me and Aaron running towards them with identical expressions of pants-shitting terror. Jason must have caught a glimpse of the thing chasing after us, too, because his own face went pale. He quickly unlocked my car and threw himself behind the wheel, screaming for Gretchen to get in. She hurried into the passenger seat, and the moment she buckled her seatbelt, she started the engine, then accelerated towards us, closing the gap in a matter of moments. Jason slammed on the brakes as he neared the car, and the car screeched to a halt inches away from us. I went to open the back passenger door, but it was locked. So was Aaron's side. I banged my fist on the window and pointed down at the locking mechanism. Jason mouthed, oh shit. He turned and scanned the door controls on the driver's side, looking for the master switch. The scraping sound was growing closer, but I refused to look back and banged on the window once more. A frustrated Jason finally leaned into the back seat and unlocked the door manually, but by then, it already had me. I could remember something dragging me back through the woods. I wasn't aware of much else, beyond a vague impression that I had been stung by an insect with some kind of paralytic venom. I felt a rush of air hit my face as the door swung shut in front of me. Then the lights came on and I realized where I was. I was inside the devil's toy box. The room's construction was actually pretty impressive. The floor was a thick sheet of transparent plexiglass layered with a mirror identical to the ones that made up the ceiling and the walls. With the door shut, the mirror on the other side was just as seamless as the rest. Thin fluorescent bulbs ran between the crevices where each mirror met the next, washing the room in its endless reflection in a pale yellow light. I made the mistake of looking down at the chasm of reflections below me and almost fainted. I shut my eyes and held out my hands, feeling for the nearest wall. I leaned against it while trying to force my head to stop spinning. 
Someone was whispering my name. Joel. I opened my eyes to see my reflection smiling at me as it said, You're his now. I let out a startled scream and backed away from the mirror I was leaning against. Something was moving around through my reflection. It was hard to see what it was at first, but something was climbing up through the corridor of my reflections, making its way towards me. As it got closer, I saw that something was me. Well, not exactly. His features were too blurred, as if this reflection had of me had been so far back that his face had been reduced to a distorted mess. That was the Joel that was coming for me. I began to bang on the entrance wall, which felt padlocked into place. I let out a frustrated scream and finally turned to face the thing coming for me, only to find that our reflections had returned to normal. There was no longer a blurry me in the mirror. I let out a reflexive sigh of relief. A beat later, it emerged from the mirror beneath me and grabbed onto my legs. I woke up screaming and Aaron shot me a panicked look. We were still seated outside the toy box. Sorry, I must have nodded off, I said. Aaron opened her mouth. She hesitated before replying, I'm worried about your friends. I rubbed my eyes. Why? How long have they been gone? A while, she said, almost 30 minutes. I pulled out my phone to check the time, confirming what Aaron had said, and I sighed. Guess we should go back to go check on them. As Aaron and I started down the path towards the entrance of the orchard, I nodded in the direction of the Sawyer's house. You think he's going to show? Aaron thought about it for a moment and nodded. I hope so. If not, I don't know what I'll do. I glanced at her, worried that Aaron was about to start crying, but the look on her face was one of stoic acceptance. Just as I realized that I was staring at her, Aaron looked up at me and we exchanged a moment of awkward eye contact. I smiled and tried to play it off as, quick, as I quickly faced forward. It was then that I realized we had lost our way in the dark and somehow ended up in a dense patch of woods that bordered the orchard. How the hell? I scanned the surrounding wilderness with my flashlight, trying to get my bearings, but I couldn't locate the orchard or any of its accompanying structures in the darkness. Then, after a bit of what I thought had been backtracking, we found ourselves at the front steps of the Sawyer house. It was a rustic, white, two-story, three if you counted the six-foot elevated, flood-proof foundation similar to a lot of the homes in the area. The space beneath the porch was unlit and pitch black, yet staring into it, I could have sworn I saw movement under there as Aaron gestured at the house. Guess we might as well say hi. Aaron started up the front stairs before I could even begin to mention the many ways in which that might be a bad idea, and without hesitation, she knocked on the door. Shit, I muttered to myself as I hurried up the stairs to stand beside her. There was a tense beat of silence, and then from inside came the sound of footsteps across hardwood floors. The door was suddenly yanked open, and a middle-aged woman with gray-streaked hair and the brightest blue eyes I'd ever seen was standing there glaring at us. This must have been Darlene. You here for the box? She said, giving both of us a cursory scan. I experienced an intense moment of deja vu as Aaron replied, sort of. Darlene leaned outside and glanced around. You better come in, then. Aaron and I exchanged a cautious look as the woman turned and stared back inside, leaving the front door open behind her. Aaron responded with a shrug that said, fuck it, and then entered the house. As I followed her in and shut the door, I heard something rustling in the bushes outside. Lock it, please. There's shit all in these woods, Darlene said. The rustling sound grew louder as I turned the deadbolt and it slid home with an ominous thunk. We followed Darlene into a den that reeked of weed as she gestured to a half-smoked blunt burning away in the ashtray. Happy self, she said, gesturing to the blunt. Now, now we know she's evil because she smokes the devil's lettuce. <laughs> she took a seat on the sofa and muted the large flat-screen TV mounted on the wall in front of her. Nah. How can I help you? 
I cleared my throat and replied, We were told to expect a Will Sawyer. Is he coming? He killed himself last night, so probably not. Oh my God, I'm so sorry, I said. Yeah, so, how can I help you? Well, I held up my phone and showed her Troy's picture. We were wondering if you remember seeing this guy out at the orchard recently, I said. Darlene examined the photo. Not that I recall, but I never went out there much after the incident with the toy box. It's my fault that godforsaken room got built in the first place, and every time I see the thing, I want to fucking cry, she said. Erin tilted her head, her tone curious, when she asked, It was your idea to build the devil's toy box? Darlene slowly shook her head. Nah, I was sick. Like, really sick, and that demon or whatever Willie summoned told him he would make me better if we built a room of mirrors and got people to go inside. If your friend went in there, I can tell you one of three things happened. He's either dead, catatonic in a hospital, or out in those woods. The ones that end up out there, something happens to them, like when a pig gets loose and grows tusks. But if it'll help you, you're welcome to look for him here. Here is in your house? Aaron asked. Yeah. Darlene stood, slid her coffee table out of the way, and pulled the rug aside to reveal a crude hatch cut into the hardwood floor. Will brought a few of the ones that went back in home went in back home. I think he felt sorry for him. Anyway, he kept him down here. The woman pulled the trap door open, and I was hit with a stench that was so potent I didn't know how we didn't notice it when we were outside. It was a smell of human filth en masse. Darlene nodded at me. You got a flashlight? I returned the nod and handed it to her. She switched on the light and aimed it down at the open hatch, revealing the upturned faces of four naked, emaciated men. Any of them look familiar? One of the men hissed at us. There was more rustling sounds from outside, and then something began to scratch at the living room window. Darlene glanced at the window as she said, oh, You got them riled up tonight. How long were you two out there? Before I could respond, a filthy hand with impossibly long fingers reached up and kicked me down through the trap door. I woke up screaming. I was sitting outside the toy box, and Jason was seated beside me. He gave me a sideways look and said, You okay? Yeah, bad dream. Sorry. I was still reeling from my nightmare within a nightmare as I glanced around. Something fell off. Where are the girls? What girls? The girls, one of them being your girlfriend Gretchen? Dude, Gretchen broke up with me like a month ago, remember? Or is this something you're doing for your story? My what? The story you're going to write about this. You're fudging the details, which you probably should. You're going to make up some fake reason why we're out here too. Some damsel in distress who needs you to investigate a derelict Halloween attraction? It's definitely a lot better than saying your depressed friend asked you to drive three hours to see some rundown shack in the middle of the night where nothing whatsoever happened that your friend shot himself. What? Jason slid the barrel of a handgun into his mouth and pulled the trigger. I was sitting close enough to the, that the shot rendered me temporarily deaf. I stood and slowly backed away, my gaze fixed on the crater of blood and viscera that had been my friend's head a moment ago, my own head ringing like a church bell from the large caliber handgun going off next to it. Still, I couldn't look away. Finally, I forced myself to turn and watch where I was going so that I could hurry up and get the fuck out of there. As I started toward the entrance, I glanced back once more to give my dead friend a final parting glance that halted when I saw that he wasn't there. Jason's blood and brains were still splattered across the front of the toy box, so I assumed that meant I hadn't imagined the whole thing, but the folding chair where he had been sitting was now void of his slumped, lifeless body. As I stood there, trying to figure out where Jason's corpse could have gone, a stream of stagnant-smelling water splattered against the side of my face. 
I turned to see Jason's, mostly, headless body draped over one of the exorcist game's mounted water guns. I'm not exactly proud to admit this, but I froze when I saw him, thinking that Jason had gone full-on undead zombie. Though after almost a minute of me standing there waiting for him to make the next move, I finally realized that wasn't going to happen. What I was seeing was nothing more than a dead man lying on a mounted water gun, which meant that someone or something was out there in the darkness moving around a 160-pound corpse and propping it up on shit simply to fuck with me. This was the realization that finally sent me running. I was in my 91 Jeep Cherokee and halfway down the unpaved dirt road back to the highway when the Cherokee hit a bump that dislodged something from its undercarriage. I pulled over and started to get out so I could take a look at what had been... And that's when I realized, once again, looking at Jason's mangled body. Moving a grown man's corpse is one thing, but moving it and then wedging it up under a car's undercarriage at the time it took me to get back to the Jeep? That's crazy talk. I realized I really don't like to give this part much thought because the truth of it is kind of depressing. Real life Jason had been really depressed about the breakup with Gretchen, and I guess I should have seen it coming, but I didn't. And so I went back home and started to write it all down, just as Jason knew I would. I got about this far when I was interrupted by a knock on the door to my apartment. I opened the door, and there was a note taped to the outside. There's a package for you in the lobby. It was about 11 p.m., and I was pretty sure the management at my complex had long since gone home for the evening, but I headed toward the lobby anyway out of sheer curiosity. I started down the steps leading to the first floor of my complex to see Jason's mutilated body leaning against a Coke machine at the bottom of the stairs. Somehow they had found me. I vaulted back up the stairs, seeing everything in slow motion as I sprinted to my apartment and locked the door. A moment later, the knob began to rattle as someone tried to turn it from the outside. I was slowly backing away from the door when something big crashed through it, though it was no longer my front door, but rather the inside wall of the toy box that suddenly buckled inward to reveal a familiar set of headlights. Jason had crashed my Cherokee into the side of the toy box. I spent 25 seconds inside the devil's toy box. That's how long it took for Jason to run my car into it. Thankfully, the Cherokee was still drivable afterwards, and we promptly got the fuck out of there. I dropped Erin off at her house with an apology, explaining there was nothing else I could do. Honestly, I don't know what she expected from me. This isn't supernatural. If your boyfriend is missing, you call the cops. I'm going home. Do I feel bad that I couldn't help her? Sure, but that, for what it's worth, we disabled the toy box and probably saved countless generations of dumb kids from making the same mistake as Erin's boyfriend. The bad news is that doing so has almost certainly scarred me for life. Even as I sit here days later writing this all down for the second time, I'm still wondering that it's worried that it's not over. I'm worried that when I wake up tomorrow, I'm going to be in front of that goddamn box. That's a good story. Yeah. I like it. Now, <clears throat> just real quick. Um, how was that a... Urban how, legend? No, how was that tied to Pinhead if his thing is like a handheld deal? Um... Because the idea is that inside the box, all the demons are held. Ah. And by opening the box, you unleash the demons. Gotcha. And once they're ready for you, they take you into the box. Ah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so I couldn't find the information on the guy who wrote the story. It just says that it was credited to Anonymous. But I do know that there is an urban legend that if you... Have you ever stared in into a mirror and there's a mirror behind you? Mm-hmm. So you get that forever thing? Yeah. There is an urban legend that if you stare into it long enough, 
I forget, there's like a certain number of reflections. Mm-hmm. One of those reflections will turn and look at you. Right. And then if that happens, then you're cursed. Uh-huh. So, but again, this is one of those stories that there is no truth to it. And yeah. the way the story is written, there's no way to actually find it. It doesn't say it is in this it's town. In Arizona. Yeah. Like it's just in a in her town. Yeah, somewhere in, in Louisiana. I was in Louisiana and yeah. I went to a town in there. Exactly. And, yeah. And from what I had read when I was researching this, the guy who actually wrote the story did that intentionally. Yeah, of course. So, you know, it yeah. could be, you know, any town. So it's it's a Louisiana urban legend. Sure. But again, there's no truth to it. And I just thought it was a really cool story. And I thought it would be cool to still tell the story. I like that story. I got caught up in it. Yeah. As a as a, as a story, you know what I mean? Like it was a very good like I I kept waiting to be like this would be a great kind of an opening sequence to a movie. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. You do a quick montage of him getting the letter, or the email. Yeah. And then they they he calls a couple of friends, they all meet up, they sit outside the toy box, you do the repetition for a couple of times and then mm-hmm. he's writing this and a demon hand. There's your trailer. Yeah. Like And what's really sad is is when I was trying to find the story, because I'd heard, you know, something about when I was because we watched Hellraiser and I was watching some or looking at some trivia and it said something about that the lament configuration was based off the devil's toy box. Of course, I was like, ooh, urban legend. Yeah. So I went to look for it and went on YouTube and there was the devil's toy box trailer from 2018. Yeah. And it was a found footage movie. And I was like, ooh. So last Sunday, Cindy and I watched it has absolutely nothing to do with the story. Wow. Nothing at all. And it was such a lame horror movie. Cool. So. Kind of like Elevator. I don't think I've seen that one. I think that's the one, if I'm not mistaken, maybe it's a different name, but it's the one where there's like an elevator that breaks down and an old lady ends up being Satan at the end. Oh, that was, yeah. Uh, the de- It was called Devil. Devil. Yeah. yeah. That was actually, I kind of enjoyed that. It was kind of like that guessing game all throughout it. It was fine. Yeah, it was fine. It would have been better if somebody else had ended up being the devil. But yeah, because it was the old lady for sure, guys. Yeah. She was the nicest one on the fucking thing. Obviously, like in a horror movie, she survives until the end. She's either the good guy or the devil who we haven't met throughout this whole movie yet. Exactly. <laughs> like whose name is on the goddamn box? Like. So the moral of the movie part of the story is caveat emptor. Just because it's named the same thing does not mean it's going to be good. So that's the story of the Devil's Toy Box. and uh, Thanks for sharing, Don. Yeah. So we'll get to the next story now. All right. So you ready for the next story? I think so. What you got for me this time? All right. This is the story of Corpsewood Manor. All right. What do you get when you have two lovers, 12,000 doses of LSD, a hand-built hermetic castle in the Georgian wilderness with a stained glass window of Baphomet, a pink room, and two bull mastiffs named Beelzebub and Arsenath? The Manson family. <laughs> You'd be forgiven for believing that this might be a premise for the self-published erotica novel. However, it was very much a real yeah, thing. Yeah, I can see the cover now. It's <laughs> just this real buff dude holding a lady in a silk gown with two hounds behind them. Mm-hmm. And it's just very purple. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Charles Scudder came from a wealthy family and worked as a professor of pharmacology at Chicago's Loyola University. Uh, A good job by its own definition. Described by those who knew him as brilliant, polished, and soft-spoken but confident, 
Scudder eventually grew fed up with city life and in 1976 left the luxury of his Chicago mansion in pursuit of a simpler life. As he put it, Scudder longed for an escape from taxes, light bills, gas bills, water bills, heating bills, and the helpless feeling that resulted from watching my old neighborhood disintegrate into an urban ghetto. Boy, who doesn't feel that way about um, America? (laughs) So the 50-year-old chose an isolated spot in the North Georgia woods to begin his new life. Very libertarian of him. Very. After leaving behind most of his worldly possessions, he decamped for the South with his lover, Joe Odom, constructing a new residence by hand in the depths of the forest. As Scudder said, within two short years, we were living in an elegant mini castle. Okay. They called it Corpsewood Manor, named for the hauntingly bare autumn trees that dotted the area. That's a rad name. Yeah, straight up. Isn't it? Now, to complete their country manor, the two added on a three-story, quote-unquote, chicken house. The first floor was for the poultry and food storage, the second for canned goods and the couple's pornography collection. Sweet. And the third was for their, quote-unquote, pink room. The family that comes together stays together, apparently. Apparently. Also known as their pleasure chamber. Wow. (laughs) I... First of all, I know the story is about to get way worse than I want it to, and I'm (laughs) fully on board with this guy right now. Like... (laughs) A manor in the woods with just one woman who watches porn with you and eats chicken? Oh, well, with one, with your lover. Yeah. Sorry for being exclusive. (laughs) But, like, for me, it would be a woman that I would be just watching porn and just fucking the shit out of her. Now, I should add that there was no electricity, no plumbing. This literally was a... I'll build a windmill. (laughs) And dig a hole. It's fine. But Scudder's homosexuality was far from the only secret he had been keeping, for he was also an official member of the Church of Satan. That's either fine or not. <laughs> One or the other. As it turns out, there was much more to this soft-spoken, secretly satan- Satanist doctor than meets the eye. Wow. Even at Loyola, the Loyola, sorry, Scudder's work was not that of a typical academic. For one, he performed government-funded experiments with mind-altering drugs like LSD, Meanwhile, he did things like dye his hair purple and keep a pet monkey. Sweet. I wonder if it was the LSD. Maybe. Uh, And when he left Loyola for Corpsewood Manor, he took a few souvenirs with him, including two human skulls and the aforementioned 12,000 doses of LSD. That's a lot. That's a lot of acid. (laughs) For two people. That's a shitload of acid, you guys. (laughs) I don't know if acid goes bad, but that's a lot of acid. (laughs) Now, with souvenirs in hand, Scudder was free to express his Satanism within the confines of Corpsewood Manor. The forest, this forest sanctuary was guarded by two mastiffs, uh, again, named Beelzebub and Arsenath. You can look those stat blocks up in the Monster Manual. <laughs> One named after a demon, the other for an H.P. Lovecraft character. Also in the manual. Yeah. Local legend adds that the pair also summoned a real demon to assist the dogs in guarding the house. Sure. Yeah. Why not? Fittingly, Scudder and Odom also decorated Corpsewood Manor with various gothic paraphernalia, including the skulls that Scudder had swiped and a pink gargoyle he had brought from his old mansion. Scudder himself thought Corpsewood Manor as more like a mausoleum, a tomb requiring care, cleaning, and endless costly repairs. Scudder also fashioned a stained glass window adorned with a prophet known as Baphomet, an important figure in the Church of Satan, and while Scudder took his it, sac- I believe that's the goat-headed dude yeah. that they made the statues. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
While Scudder took his Satanism seriously, it's important to understand what exactly that religion meant to him. As America was dragged into the Satanic panic of the 80s, Scudder and Odom developed a reputation among the locals as, quote-unquote, devil worshippers. Mm-hmm. Now, in Georgia, so you can just imagine what that was like. Sweet. What year was this? Uh, 1978 into the 80s. Early, late nice. 70s, early 80s. Nice. So... Two gay Satanists. Yeah. Dangerous. That lived in the woods by themselves. That's fully dangerous for them. Yeah. Like, they they are, <laughs> they are they die in this, don't they? Oh, you'll see. Okay. Aided by the garish occult decorations in their gothic dwellings, such as devil statues, stained glass pentagrams, bedposts intricately carved with an orgy of demon figures. I fully want to buy this mansion, dude. <laughs> a pink gargoyle and a wooden sign painted, Beware of the Beast. A pink gargoyle? Yeah. That's baller. <laughs> Like, that's straight up. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Mounted above the mantle was a self-painted portrait that depicted Scudder in a similar style to Francis Bacon's tortured, nightmarish works. His hands bound behind his back, dead of five gunshot wounds. Not to mention the ludicrous amounts of hallucinogens Scudder kept locked in his desk. Say that again? Say that sentence? Whoa, what happened? About the painting? Oh, okay, it was a painting. I was yeah. like, oh shit. Yeah. They're two enormous mastiff dogs, and the fact that Scudder was an official member of the Church of Satan. Scudder, like other members of the Church of Satan, didn't worship Satan, and was instead an atheist who chose to celebrate the base worldly pleasures that he and other church members felt were denied to humans. They're basically hedonists. Right. As, uh, and celebrate such pleasures they did. Scudder and Odom liked to invite guests over for wild sex parties centered on the pink room. Indeed, painted entirely pink. This pleasure chamber was filled with mattresses, candles, whips, chains, pornography, and even a logbook listing guests' sexual predilections. Hmm. Very organized. But while these acts were reportedly consensual, the pink room parties are the reason I don't that like that word, reportedly. <laughs> well, the pink room parties are the reason that on the night of December 12th, 1982, Corpsewood Manor turned into a bloody murder scene. Oh, fun. Yeah. While Scudder and Odom encouraged... With, with Scudder and Odom encouraging all their Corpsewood Manor guests to indulge in the every whim and a haze of sex and drugs, things were bound to eventually implode. Yeah. But things ultimately came to a far bloodier end than anyone would likely have imagined. Among the locals that Scudder and Odom invited to their home for parties and sexual adventures of one kind or another were 17-year-old Kenneth Avery Brock and his roommate, 30-year-old Samuel Tony West. Now, information is scarce and reports, reports vary, but at least according to Amy Petula's The Corpsewood Manor Murders in North Georgia, Brock had several homosexual encounters with Scudder and Corpsewood, eventually, or at Corpsewood, and eventually Brock bought, brought West there for more of the same, or at least the free brew booze and drugs. However, West was not only strongly objected to any kind of homosexuality activity, but also convinced Brock that he had been taken advantage of by Scudder. Again, whether Brock had actually been taken advantage of remains unclear. Nevertheless, Brock and West decided to return to Corpsewood and rob the two men of their isolated forest home. Brock and West, with two teenagers named Joey Well... Which, which one of these is the teenager? Brock is the 17-year-old? Um... Yes, Brock was the 17-year-old. Okay. Brock and West, with two teenagers named Joey Wells and Teresa Hudgens, along for the ride, headed to Corpsewood Manor on December 12, 1982, with guns in tow. However, things didn't start off violently. Initially, the four guests acted as if they had just there to hang out and accepted Scudder's offer of homemade wine as well as a potent huffing mixture of varnish, paint thinner, and other chemicals. Cool. Yeah. Fun. 
At some point during this drug and alcohol fueled haze, Brock got down to business, retrieving a rifle from his car and promptly shooting Odom and the two dogs. Fuck. Then, Brock and West showed... Why do you have to kill the dogs, though? Have you seen the bull mastiff? Yeah. If they were the guard dogs and they see somebody shoot their human... That's true. Yeah. Um, Brock and West showed Scudder the bloodbath and did all they could to force him to give up whatever money he had. Mm-hmm. What Brock and West hadn't realized is that there was no riches at the house of any kind. Yeah, what's the point of a fucking fortress in the woods if you need money? Yeah, and when they did eventually accept this fact, they shot Scudder five times in the head. Damn! Yeah, took what little valuables were lying around and fled the scene. Now, according to legend, as he was murdered, Charles Scudder cursed the county to never prosper. The official report says that his last words were, I asked for this. They fled. They all fled to Cali- all the way to Mississippi, where they killed a man named... Hold Kurt- on, hold on, hold on. That right there is some anti-gay bullshit. There is no way that his last words were, I asked for this. This man seems like a misunderstood person who, yes, had some predilections that you and I probably not down with. And assuming that all of the things that happened were consensual, he's probably fine. And he got killed because some people were greedy. If everything was consensual. If not, he still probably shouldn't have gotten killed. But like, you know, Fortress in the Woods, not great for a predator. Yeah. So it's a coin flip on this one for me for now. Yeah. Something to point out is the uh, painting where it said that he was, the painting showed him shot five times in the head. The legend is someone asked him one time what that was a painting of, and he said, that is how I'm going to die. And he was shot five times in the head. Whether that's a self-fulfilling prophecy or not, yeah, who knows. So they fled all the way to Mississippi, and when there, they killed a man named Kirby Phelps as part of a robbery gone wrong on December 15th. Afterwards, perhaps feeling remorseful, Brock returned to Georgia and turned himself into police on December 20th. Also, he didn't curse the county. Um, the Civil War cursed the <laughs> South. Because we chose wrong? Yeah. Sorry. West turned himself in in Chattanooga, Tennessee on December 25th. Eventually, West was found guilty of two counts of murder and sentenced to death, while Brock pleaded guilty and received three consecutive life terms. With that came the end of the strange and bloody story of the Corpsewood Manor. Mm-hmm. Ever since that unfortunate night, souvenir hounds have dismantled the red brick castle piece by piece, and a deep well of lore has sprung up around the foot of the Little Sand Mountain. One of them is the legend of a hunter that ventured into the woods near the castle and went missing. All the search party found of him was his face nailed to a tree. Now he wanders those woods, a grinning red skull in coveralls, searching for it. Hmm. Another is that of the ghostly mastiffs that still haunt the surrounding wilderness, chasing anyone unlucky enough to be there after dark. A family acquaintance once told someone a story of how he and some of his friends had gone up there when he was a teenager to visit Charles Scudder while he was still alive. They left just after midnight, drunk as skunks, and halfway down the mountain, one of them had to relieve himself. So they pulled over and let him out to do his business. As they sat there in the car, idling, a pair of glowing green eyes loomed at them from the darkness, eight or nine feet tall. The man's friend hauled him backwards into the car, still pissing, and spread away. According to a self-described witch living in Chattooga County, Scudder's curse is actually a demon that he summoned during the six years that they lived there. Mm-hmm. 
It's the quote-unquote beast referred to on the wooden sign that used to be displayed at Corpsewood. And the beast still resides in the ruins to this day, which is why this witch won't go back up there, having been confronted by a shadow man in his bedroom after visiting the site. One night, after missing curfew, the witch tried to take a shortcut across the mountain and ended up stranded there in the dead of night. He wrote in a post on Reddit about this incident. I was approaching midnight. It was dark, cold, and I was already nervous. Figured if I simply kept my eyes on the road and thought happy thoughts, that I'd be fine. The drive up the mountain went well enough, my nerves pulling taut as I began my ascent. For whatever reason, I happened to glance at the clock in the car stereo and watched as the little glowing numbers clicked over from 11.59 to midnight. At that precise moment, things went bad. The car lurched, sputtered, backfired, and finally died roughly 50 feet from Dead Horse Road, which is the road that led up to Corpsewood Manor. It was named after that because when they, Odom and Scudder, found this road, there was a dead horse on the road. So they just named it Dead Horse Road, named it Corpsewood Manor. Yep. They were crazy. Or not crazy, but you know. They sounded like they were rad as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that road is an unmarked road. Yeah, for sure. I'll tell you at the end how you can actually still find it. Fear boiled up in me like a geyser, hot, sickening. I tried for several minutes to crank the car over and over and over to no avail. I forgot to put gas in this bitch. <laughs> I had no cell phone, which, knowing my luck, would have been dead or had no service and was quite a distance away from the nearest home that might have a phone. I was in near hysterics, alone and on top of a cursed mountain at midnight. At the base of the mountain lived... Are not all mountains cursed? Mm, I'm sure. It feels like over the, you know full course of human history if curses are real all mountains must be <laughs> yeah especially you know, in america any mountain that a human has been on must be cursed <laughs> at the base of the mountain lived a family friend and going to them would be better the better bet as i was fairly confident they wouldn't meet me at the door with a gun in hand i waited several minutes taking deep breaths trying to stop the shaking in my hands and finally pulled the keys from the ignition i had no flashlight no lighter nothing that would help me see in the dark of the mountain's tree cover so I left the car lights on, set to high beams, and got out. I was met with absolute silence. No chirping insects, no tree frogs singing. Absolute silence that made the hair on the back of my neck stand at attention. Taking a deep breath, I looked back the way I had come, looked in the direction I was planning to go, said a quick prayer, and began walking, knowing if I stayed in the car, no one would ever think to look for me where I was at. That thought alone, that I would be stuck so close to that damned road, was enough to get my legs moving. What happened next began gradually. At first, it blended well with the crunch of my steps on the gravel and rocks of the road. The longer I walked, however, the more pronounced it became until there was no doubt that something, something large, was following me in the tree line. Its footsteps were heavy, growing louder, as if it was walking just beside me, a shuffling sound, heavy, and most certainly bipedal. Shortly after that, another extraordinary thing happened. I began to notice faintly at first the presence of glowing bits of light just bigger than a softball, maybe the size of the grapefruit of a or small melon. Initially, I chalked it up to fireflies and ignored it. Before long, however, there were more of the things than I could count, and they were everywhere, above me, around me, in the tree line, even weaving in and out of my legs as I walked. No sound at all, no insect-like buzzing of wings, no feel of the wind. A solid globe of light, each and every one of them. I kept walking. So did the things following me. The orbs continued to flit about me. To be honest, I can't say how I managed to keep myself from collapsing into a fetal position and crying for my mommy. 
Nonetheless, maybe halfway down the mountain, much to my surprise, I noticed car lights in the tree line, coming from farther down the road. As soon as the lights of the other car hit me, all the glowing orbs and the sound of footsteps faded altogether. Now, there is also the urban legend that if you take a brick mm-hmm. from Corpsewood Manor, you will be cursed. Cool. Um, to, to find it, it's just, it's about a mi- an hour south, due south of Chattanooga, Tennessee on Interstate 27. Mm-hmm. If you drive there on that road, you will see eventually, if you're looking, two large boulders. Those two boulders block car traffic from Corpsewood Manor, or to Corpsewood Manor, I should say. Mm -hmm. The family who owns the property Mm -hmm. allow people to visit Corpsewood Manor as long as they are respectful, Mm -hmm. do not trash it and everything else. In 19... or 2008? I forget the year. uh, There was a fire. And most of Corpsewood Manor was destroyed. The brick still stands to this day, and you can still visit it. Now, this picture I'm showing you here is a picture from the day of the um, police investigation. So uh, that's the like when the guys got killed. Yeah. So wow. the, when the police showed up, because the, a neighbor, it's a, it's genuinely beautiful. It is. I mean, it looks very cool. There's like ivy growing up the side of it on one part. It's really nice. Yeah. Here is a picture. It's kind of a smaller picture, but this is one of this is the bedroom. You can see stained glass windows and stuff. Cool. And then finally, this was the gazebo as it stands today. Damn. Yeah. So all gone. Wow. But so that's that's the story of Corpsewood Manor. And for anyone that's interested, like I said. You can actually still go out and visit it. Wow. Um, it does look like the burnt out husk of a mansion. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, that's a kind of a sad story for this one, I think. Yeah. Um, because it, it honestly, yeah, well, these people are doing some things that I maybe disagree with lifestyle wise, and I'm not talking about being gay. I'm talking about the drugs and the sex. Like that is something that I think it feels like these people got targeted, these two men got targeted because of the fact that they were gay and different. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's fucked up. And, like, that's the real horror to me is that, like, people can do things like this because, I mean, it even was like the, the dude Wes or Brock was like, I don't, I don't agree with homosexuality or nothing like that. And, you know, this kid probably lied and said that I got you know he took advantage of me and now we're gonna go kill them both like yeah. that's fucked yeah and in fact um, it was because of the devil worship and the homosexuality in the early 80s that it was actually more the fact the third person that they killed in Mississippi that people were more upset about them yeah murdering wow than Scudder and Odom Scudder and Odom were kind of an afterthought yeah but, you know, I guess even what they were, you know, you still have to kind of convict them. But, you know, that was more of a slap on the wrist for them yeah. than the second guy or the third guy that was killed. Yeah. But. Still, that's like fully. And that's even that's kind of more messed up because, we, you know, the only reason people didn't care. I mean, people people didn't care because these two guys were gay and living in the woods. Yeah. Like, that's really, really sad. Mm. And fucked. Right fucked up. Yeah. 
Well, not every... It's maybe not as bad as those two girls who killed their friend, but still. No, she didn't die. Tried to kill their tried. friend. Yeah, tried to. That was a wor- that was more horrifying to me than this. Like, this yeah. this feels like a story that I've heard. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that the, I think that the Slenderman stabbing is more horrifying because it was kids. Yeah, they were like 12. Yeah, 12-year-old kids that's doing it. children. Yeah. Like, that's a baby. You don't think, Killing? What? Yeah. You don't think <laughs> like, about a 12-year-old... A 12-year-old should not have a knife. Yeah, they shouldn't have the capacity to contemplate murdering right. somebody. Right, to plan it. Yeah. So, as well. Yeah. Like, they planned it. Yeah. So, I mean... On her birthday, too? Like, yeah. that's fucked. Like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. But... Man, that story was wild. Anyway, this story was also very crazy. Pretty sad. Um, I wish I could have partied with these dudes. <laughs> like, I really do wish I could have partied with these guys. Like, that is rad as hell <laughs> yeah because it was literally it was just i don't even do the drugs we talked about in this episode and like i want to party with these dudes i'm sure they didn't well yeah i mean i wouldn't be huffing i pretty much only smoke weed yeah and I'm by sure pretty much i mean weed. literally that's all i smoke well <laughs> something i didn't mention they had their own vineyard they they made their own wine I that's cool yeah so i mean they they were really completely self-sufficient yeah they lived in tents or a tent while they built and they built that by hand yeah, I mean, my grandfather built his yeah. house by hand as well back in the 50s, 60s, yeah. something like that. So, I mean... Very similar brick. Yeah, and yeah. they, once they got the first floor built and put, you know, the roof on the first floor, then they moved in and then continued building the second story. Yeah. Uh, there wasn't an actual picture, I don't think, of the pink room or the chicken shack or whatever it was called. Yeah, no worries. But... I mean, you guys can imagine. Yeah. It was pink. It had fetish gear around. <laughs> you get it? Oh, here is the painting that we discussed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can see in his forehead the five bullet wounds. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. And there's there's if you're interested, you can go on to YouTube. There are documentaries about Corpsewood Manor that go into more detail than I did. Um, there are people who have visited the ruins. Um, can actually give you more better directions how to get more better. Yeah, better directions on how to get there than I did. I think I would like to say this as well. One of my favorite things about horror stories, like online, like people who are like, I was a witch and I was trapped or whatever. Like, oh, these, this presence was following me and there's these spooky lights were, but then as soon as another light hit me, they were gone. Yeah. It's like, dude, if you're a witch and you don't have a spell for light, <laughs> I'm sorry. Luminous. If you don't have a way to like protect yourself against evil spirits or like orbs that are going to float around you, yeah. you shouldn't be a witch. <laughs> fully. Well, I fully believe 99% of people who say they're witches aren't. No, of course they're not. They're Wiccans that, you know, quote unquote, worship Mother Earth. But I remember I bought a witch's spell book. But I'm just saying, if you're the type of witch who believes in like orbs being able to follow you and presences and spirits and things but you don't believe that you have the power to make an orb of light i don't trust you you don't believe hard enough i don't even believe in magic but i know that's true right there like you don't it's like if i'm saying like i'm a soldier but i don't have a gun what (laughs) huh i don't know how to punch but i'm a boxer excuse me (laughs) that's the basic thing is, is the one about spirits and see, like seeing things. That's like the basic one. Yeah. Just saying, get yourself a familiar. I don't know. 
All right. So we want to thank you for coming to the campfire tonight and hope you enjoyed our stories. Um, or my ridiculous jokes about people dying. Yeah. Because otherwise we'll all go crazy. Yeah. But that's, you know, hopefully one day we'll have a happier scary nah. story. Nah. No. We'll get No, nah, this ain't no goosebumps. We're only here <laughs> for sad, depressing stories about how people got killed. Yeah. And or attempted. Yeah. I would say that the Slender Man story ends happier than this one. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's uh, the Hook Man that has no ending. Yeah, the Hook Man still out there possibly well, he's probably dead by now well, maybe he could be really 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 old and still be come here though kid you want a worthers <laughs> original stab 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 can you come closer grandpa stop. grandpa stop poking me it's not <laughs> <laughs> grandpa thank you for the worthers but it's not gonna work <laughs> we've told you that's a plastic knife i'm sorry granddad <laughs> When you murdered my cousin, we had to change out the knives. <laughs> we had to. All right, everybody. Well, thank you again for coming to the campfire. I've been Don. And I've been Ruben. And this has been Campfire Tales. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>